I want to talk to you a little bit about snow. I lived in St. Paul, Minnesota for a number of years and in other locations in the Midwest for a lot more years. So I know something about snowstorms. One thing that always struck me about snowstorms is that I would get to meet neighbors that I had never met before and probably would not have met under any other circumstances. But the huge snowdrifts called us out to shovel and car after car stuck in its space, wheels spinning uselessly against the icy skid of packed snow called us to push. And so we did. Standing shoulder to shoulder with neighbors we barely glanced at in everyday life, lifting up on bumpers together, cheeks almost pressed against the trunks of cars, laughing as our feet slid like the tires, and we stumbled and regained our grips, cheering ourselves and each other for each vehicle we freed, waving as it rolled down the street and then looking for the next car to push. Wandering the familiar but now newly discovered streets of our neighborhood. We complained to each other about the cold. We cursed the snow with joyful abandon. We all said that we couldn't wait until spring or better yet summer. But we also knew that with spring, with summer, with the loss of the unifying purpose of getting through the winter together, we would retreat into our respective homes. We would smile maybe and nod to one another on our trips to our cars, but we would not be able to come together in the same way. Without the snow to shovel, the cars to push, the weather to, well, weather, we would once again be solitary beings with individual purposes who passed one another anonymously. And I sometimes wondered, what is it about snowstorms? I read an article about Jeanette Scola Trapani, who was believed to be the oldest survivor of the 1906 San Francisco fire and earthquake when she died on Monday, December 29th, 2009. She was 107. Though she was only four years old at the time of the earthquake, she had clear memories of the disaster, said her daughter. She vividly remembered the terrible smell of the smoke from the burning city and how she and her family had to live in a tent in the Presidio. Living through a disaster is a memorable experience. We would expect such an event to leave an imprint, but most often, we associate it with stress, trauma, or tragedy, and these are all present in such events. But there are also other things present, things that haven't received nearly enough attention, things that lead some survivors of such disasters like Dorothy Day to speak of the immediate aftermath as a kind of utopia because of the free-flowing, active, compassion displayed by human beings toward one another. Rebecca Solnit looks at these things in that book entitled A Paradise Built in Hell, the Extraordinary Communities that Arise in Disaster.
disasters, she finds, while they cruelly strip us of our everyday touchstones of security, also sometimes tear down those socially constructed walls that divide us. Though it is believed that disasters can shatter lives, sometimes they shatter a particular mode of life, allowing another less restrained, more compassionate and collaborative life to appear. Mrs. Anna Amelia Holschauer, finding herself camped out in Golden Gate Park after the earthquake, stitched together blankets, carpets, and sheets to make a tent that sheltered 22 people, including 13 children. She started a tiny soup kitchen with one tin can to drink from and one pie plate to eat from. With the help of people who pitched in to find food and supplies, make signs, and spread the word, the kitchen was soon serving two to three hundred people a day, and other such kitchens and community gatherings were springing up in front of other camps and street-side shelters. Just as her kitchen was one of many spontaneously launched community centers and relief projects, so her resilient resourcefulness represents the ordinary response in many disasters, Solnet writes. In them, strangers become friends and collaborators. Goods are shared freely. People improvise new roles for themselves. This describes something that I received a very tiny taste of in those Minnesota snowstorms. Strangers become friends and collaborators with the common purpose of helping one another. Now, most snowstorms could hardly be described as disasters. They disrupt our lives for a few hours, maybe a few days, and the consequences are usually not severe. So the effects that Solnit describes can be fleeting. But the disasters which she explores in her book, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, the 1917 explosion in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the 1985 Mexico City earthquake, September 11th, 2001 in New York, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, they had very tragic consequences. Many people died, many more were injured, both physically and psychologically. Homes and possessions were lost, families were torn asunder, and the official responses were ineffectual and all too often painfully misguided, increasing the tragedy rather than relieving it. In the midst of the suffering, the loss, the sadness, it seemed that this tendency to come together in compassionate collaboration was even intensified. As poet Giaconda Belli said of the Managua, Nicaragua earthquake, you realize that life has to be lived well or is not worth living. It's a very profound transformation that takes place during catastrophes. It's like a near-death experience, but lived collectively. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving, forgetful of the morrow, wrote Dorothy Day. While the crisis lasted, people 
loved each other. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. Is that our usual view of a crisis? Isn't a crisis something to move quickly beyond, to get back to normal? Are there things that we can learn from how people respond in crisis? These are questions worth asking. The crisis we are in the midst of now specifically advises against working shoulder to shoulder in a literal sense, and yet I see people finding ways to do that, just that, in a figurative but no less meaningful sense. And yes, there are the hoarders, the gun purchasers, the ignorant, the negligent, the people who are afraid, the president. There are those who don't seem able yet to rise to the occasion. But at the same time, I have noticed and other people have confirmed for me a spirit of unity that is growing and spilling out of doors and windows and balconies with music and applause and clapping for healthcare workers and grocery store employees and those who are working tirelessly and selflessly to heal what is harmed. There are looks of recognition that happen between strangers at a distance that are more intimate than encounters from everyday experience when we may have brushed shoulders on a sidewalk or been riding the same elevator. There are those advocating, many in this congregation, for those in detention centers and prisons made especially vulnerable to this virus, people reaching out to check on one another, people concerned about the homeless and the hungry, vulnerable at all times and especially now. There is a revelation at hand regarding what has always been true. We are one human family. It is not such a stretch to walk a mile in our neighbor's shoes when we understand we are all on the same road, sharing a common destiny. And before this present situation passes, my hope is that we can think about ways to carry this on into the future. We need to institutionalize this generosity of spirit that arises in crisis, in a way that carries us through those months and years and decades ahead, that carries us over those times when we won't be feeling it as strongly as we are presently in the midst of it all. This clear illustration that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. We need to talk about intentional acts of kindness rather than random. Let's grab this and hold it and shape it into a form that will last so that we can look back and say, while the crisis lasted, people loved each other. And it touched something so deep inside them and it felt so right that when the crisis was over, they just kept on loving. 